What is the inner life like for physicians who care for the seriously ill? You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and joining me is Dr. Diane Meyer. Dr. Meyer is Professor of Geriatrics and Internal Medicine and the Director of the Hertzberg Palliative Care Institute at Mount Sinai School of Medicine in New York. She is also the Director of the Center to advance palliative care. Dr. Meyer, welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. Thank you. What do you mean by the inner life of physicians? I think sometimes we physicians forget that we are just as human as our patients and their families and therefore have feelings and experience emotion and reactions to the very charged events and situations that our patients encounter and that willy-nilly we are a part of because we are practicing medicine. Is the role of a physician's emotions in the care of the patient taught in medical school? This is an area that is typically not taught in medical school. The role of physician emotion in the care of the patient, both positive and negative, and yet I think it is the failure to teach awareness of the impact of our own emotions not only on ourselves, but very importantly on our patients and their families, can be traced to many of the problems in medicine, including the malpractice crisis and the rising levels of burnout and alienation expressed by many physicians after years of medical practice. What led to your passion for this subject? I think the reason that I became interested in looking at the role of the inner life of the physician in the care of the seriously ill was both because of my own feelings in taking care of such patients as a full-time faculty member in a teaching hospital and also in observing the widely variable reactions of many of my colleagues who... Sometimes the sicker and more complicated the patient got, the less they came around. Other times, the sicker and more complicated the patient got, the more often they seemed to attend to the patient and their family. And it was interesting to me to see how diverse and variable physician reactions were to their sickest, most complicated patients and what the impact of those reactions were on the family and patient sense of trust in the healthcare system, and also the quality of care that those patients received. Isn't it a given that emotions are part of the equation? I think what's important for physicians to recognize is that it is inevitable that we're going to have strong feelings arising in response to care of very complicated, very ill patients, um, very often patients whose death is premature and tragic both for the patient and for the family, and for us, since we very often have tried our very best to save the patient, to cure the patient, at least to prolong their life. And when we are unable to accomplish that, very often we feel as if somehow we personally failed. Even though we know rationally that every life ends in death and that physicians are human and can only do what the science will allow us to do at this point, and that not every disease is fixable, knowing that rationally um, and knowing it at a deeper emotional level are two different things. What advice do you have for physicians? If physicians can be aware of how it feels 
when, for example, a patient gets sicker despite our best efforts, when, for example, a patient or family are very angry because their disease progressed despite going through a lot of difficult and burdensome treatments. We can remain professional, remain present, and continue to provide appropriate care for the patient only if we are aware of and monitoring our own emotions so they don't get in the way of our ability to take proper care of the patient. How can physicians effectively deal with their own discomfort over bad outcomes? Well, I think the first thing to do is to allow ourselves to feel what we're feeling consciously. Um, And in order to know that we're feeling something that may be influencing the care of our patients, we have to look at our behaviors as clues. So, for example, if we're avoiding going to see a patient in the hospital or we're avoiding returning the phone calls of an angry family member or we're looking to see if someone else could see the patient instead of us, those are clues that emotions that we're feeling about the care of this patient and family may be adversely affecting the care we are providing or the care we are arranging for our patients. And that's the point at which it's very important to allow ourselves to pause for a few seconds and say, what am I feeling here? Am I feeling insulted because the patient's family is blaming me? for the patient's continued decline? Am I feeling like a failure because I was unable to diagnose this cancer early enough to do something to perhaps cure the patient? Am I feeling totally exhausted and burned out and just can't deal with anymore? Once we identify the emotion, we are then able to make sure that it doesn't dictate our behavior. But if we're unconscious of the emotion, it's controlling our behavior without our knowing it. So this is, you know, what's called in the psychiatric literature countertransference. That is the feelings that the physician has in response to the patient. Um, And in psychiatry uh, training, doctors are taught over years to become increasingly aware of their own emotions and how their own emotions influence their practice in the care of patients. In the other parts of medicine, this is completely absent from the curriculum. And yet when you think about it, it's equally important, particularly for those of us who are taking care of very complicated, very sick patients with long-term chronic diseases who have had a struggle in the years of trying to live with a bad disease and working not only with us but with multiple other physicians. What is the first step? The first step is to name and identify the emotion because that in and of itself enables us to transcend the influence of the emotion on our behavior. It may be that we will decide that, in fact, the emotion is so powerful or so controlling that we really are no longer the best person to be providing care to the patient. We may decide that the best thing to do is to refer the patient to someone else who might be more objective, less involved, better able to provide professional care to the patient. But before making a decision like that, which will feel like an abandonment to the patient and family, what I typically do and what I recommend is finding a trusted colleague with whom to discuss the case, discuss what you are feeling, and see if just an open and conscious conversation about the situation doesn't lead to a way through. 99% of the time, it does. I think one of the major risk factors is someone who's been very sick and in the hospital or in and out of the hospital for a long time. 
because what happens after a while is there's a sort of crisis fatigue that develops. Physicians start feeling like it doesn't matter what I do, this patient's not going to get better. The patient and family become increasingly discouraged, depressed, sometimes angry because things didn't go the way they wanted them to. That's a major risk factor for avoidance and abandonment of patients and families. And I think it's critical to be aware of it because these are the patients and families who need us the most, not the least. And the emotional exhaustion we feel because of their prolonged care needs greatly compounds the suffering and distress that these patients and families feel. What are other common risk factors? Other common risk factors to be aware of are, for example, a patient who is similar to or the same age as a member of our own family, a patient who is very young and causes a great deal of distress because young people aren't supposed to get very sick, a patient who is a VIP um, or very influential patient may cause anxiety, insecurity, and behaviors that are not normative or appropriately professional. All doctors know that VIP care is not as good as standard medical care, and it's because of emotions getting in the way of rational, professional decision-making. And I think sometimes there are patients and families who just rub us the wrong way and for whom, you know, we just prefer not to be in their presence. Nonetheless, those patients and families deserve the same medical care that everyone else does, and it's important to recognize that we may not have a lot of affection for this particular patient and family, but that as professionals, we can still do our job as good doctors. And I guess the last one I would point to is when, and I'm sure every doctor has experienced this, you walk into the room and you can feel the waves of anger coming at you before you even say a word. Um, The family's angry, the patient's angry. Before anything else has happened, you know that you're facing a lot of rage. And the important thing there is not to let that rage become catching, become infectious to you, the physician, because then what you have is just people being angry at each other. It's very important to recognize that the emotions that we physicians are feeling in the presence of the patient and family are very often exactly what the patient and family are feeling. And being aware that our feeling of wanting to run screaming in the opposite direction is exactly how they're feeling makes it easier to bear these very intense and powerful emotions and still remain present in a professional manner to help the patient and family. What's your best advice for brokering a disagreement in that type of situation among family members and the patient? Yeah, I think brokering disagreement, it's first of all something very common that doctors have to do, disagreement between physicians, disagreement between physicians and patients, between patients and families, within families. I think the important thing is, first of all, to reestablish the ground rule that everyone wants the best for the patient that everyone is in agreement on wanting the best thing for the patient. And then hearing different people's perspectives and allowing each person to express their perspective fully and without being interrupted about what they think is best and why they think it's best and allowing those things to be heard. What that then does is give an opportunity for correcting misinformation. So very often, for example, patients 
or their families will be demanding therapies that we physicians feel are not only not beneficial but are possibly going to shorten the patient's life or harm the patient. It's very important to hear the family out about where they got the information, who spoke to them, what makes them think this is appropriate for their own family member, because until you know how they got to where they got, you can't help them understand how the information they got does not apply to their own family member. So, you know, the answer is what it always is, time for listening, time for communication, and remembering that everyone is here for the same thing, to do the best for the patient. I want to thank Dr. Diane Meyer, who has been our guest discussing the inner life of physicians. I'm Susan Dolan. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.